I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Lama Surya Das's Awakening Now podcast. This podcast is an expression of our shared connection. We depend on you, our community of listeners, for support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash suryadas and you can either click on the donate button or bookmark the Amazon link. We get a small percentage of all of your purchases. Or you can go and sign up for a free trial with Audible.com. Your support will allow Lama Suryadas to continue to illuminate the timeless Tibetan wisdom. So, I want to read from... Our lineage, usually I don't like to read things. I'd rather keep it fresh and just teach as I've been taught according to the time and circumstances. If you keep it short, I don't even know if I'll read it all. We'll put it on the board. From the third Karmapa, the Karmapa was was the head of the Kagyu lineage of Mahamudra. His monastery in the West in America is over in Woodstock, New York. I helped start it in 1977, and he came there. And he died near here in Chicago in 84. The third Karmapa was a great Dzogchen master. He was the Dharma brother of Longchenpa. He sings this single word of heartfelt advice. Homage to all the sacred masters. This translated from the Tibetan, of course, from this great third Karmapa, this seminal Karmapa that everybody studies, worships, and remembers with great love. Dharma brother, contemporary and Dharma brother. They studied together of the great... Zogchen master, all-knowing Longchenpa in the 14th century. Homage to all the sacred masters, the heart-mind of all the Buddhas of the past, present, and future, widely renowned as the Dharmakaya, as Mahamudra, 
as enlightened mind is precisely your own mind which thinks of this and that. What kind of Buddhist teaching is this? And this must be my commentary. I don't know. Somebody printed this out for me. <laughs> yeah. The Karmapa, this is my commentary from some teaching. The Karmapa says that the essential nature of your own mind, is, which thinks of this and that, is the Buddha mind. Dharmakaya, Mahamudra, Dzogchen, absolute truth. All the phenomena of samsara and nirvana, heaven and hell, appear within this unique awareness, your own intrinsic awareness nature. Isn't that amazing? Imaho. So this is Karmapa's teaching. There's a lot more we could say about it. I'm going to put this on the board. This is called Buddhahood. This is what it's meant when it says one moment makes all the difference. One moment of total awareness is one moment of perfect freedom and enlightenment. That's why this practice is so profound. One eternal instant is enough. You don't have to build it up like an endless investment project waiting until the, it, your bonds ripen. One moment included is it all. Why not this moment? What are we waiting for? Then I can see this is a quote again from the end of the Karmapa's like two-page song. I swear there is not a more profound and ultimate instruction from all the holy and realized masters of the Enlightenment lineage than this single word of my heart advice. Please don't waste it. Don't squander your life looking for this and that. Remember this teaching always. There is no mistake in it. Rely on the blessings of such a teaching and practice rather than on the blessings of others. This command was written by the Karmapa III, Rangjung Dorje, the self-arisen Vajra diamond in the Yangon Hermitage in the mountains. May all beings be happy. So this is the essence of the view, meditation, and action of Dzogchen, the innate or natural great perfection that I've been talking about this week, concentrating on the view, meditation, and action, the three naturals, the view, meditation, and action, the glimpse, maturation, and stabilization, practice path, the ground path and fruit of the luminous great perfection. The three vital points that strike to the heart of the matter, as Pachurimche called it, view, meditation, and action. First, introduction or recognition. Second, re ascertaining it with certainty, maturation, checking it out. Exercising Rigpa. First, recognizing Rigpa, your Buddha-ness, your Buddha mind, your Buddha nature. Second, exercising and practicing it, checking it out, maturing it. And third, stabilizing it totally. Three in one, really. Rigpa all the way. Your mind, Buddha mind. Suzuki Roshi of Zen tradition saying, Buddha nature is human nature. When you become truly you, Zen becomes Zen. Implying not until then. Things are not really what they are as long as you're inauthentic. When you become truly you, then Zen becomes Zen. Like, becomes really Zen, not just imitation. So, I got a lot of learning early about this, fortunately. I met these things in college. I went in 1920, uh, 
when I was 20 in 1980, <laughs> 1970. When I was 20, I graduated from college and I went to India. I was 20 years old, looking for such things. And I got some learn a lot of learning, I have to admit now. I never said this before, early in my 20s and 30s. Of course, I had read about it already in college and learned to meditate and so on, but not really could do it in those smoky dormitory rooms. But then I found and I realized that learning and so on and our Western, you know, very modern, intellectual, conceptual way of doing things was not all that it was cracked up to be or all that I hoped. And got more deeply into, let's say, um, making the journey from the head to the heart. And I think that's very important. Otherwise, I'd be a very dried out intellectual Buddhist scholar. You know, and meditator. But kind of dried out like a salted plum. If you know what those umeboshis, those salted plums that you get in Japanese restaurant. It's kind of, you know, like salted fish. It's good for an ocean journey when you don't have refrigerators, but it's pretty dry. Salted fish or beef jerky, let's say. Turkey jerky. That's what I'd be, turkey jerky, rather than a nice big juicy ham. <laughs> Kosher ham. <laughs> when, when I become me, then Zen becomes Zen. So I exhort you to do similarly not just become a walking encyclopedia of spiritual practices and studying and reading all the books about Buddhism or Hinduism or yoga or spirituality or whatever, but really practice this and make it your own. Take it home so you can take it into action, into life, daily life where the rubber really meets the road on the spiritual path. So that's what I want to talk about today integrating the Dharma with daily life, working on oneself, as it were, the Bodhisattva way, developing wisdom and compassion. Opening one's heart, as well as opening and awakening the mind and the body, and the energy, and the spirit, and the soul, whatever sheaths of being, or dimensions, or chakras, or you know, whatever scheme you want to talk about. Being an integral bodhisattva, an integrated person, not just some kind of lunar asparagus, <laughs> or orchid that can only grow in the greenhouse, like a retreat. Be more like clover, like grass that can grow anywhere, or even better, like weeds. They can even pop up through cement or sand. can grow anywhere. I feel like when we talk about view meditation and action, you know, action is not very well understood these days. In fact, what we call action is almost entirely reaction. But here, action means Buddha activity or your, your, your conduct, your way of being, not just reaction. It might include 
appropriate responsiveness, but it's not so driven. It's not compulsive. It's not obsessive. You don't have to always do something, even when nothing's called for or needed. So the view, the great perfection, like the sky, leads to the meditation of non-meditation, of getting used to that, you know, the view like the sky, leave it as it is, the meditation like the mountain, leave it as it is, and the action like the ocean's waves, leave it as it is. The ocean can be busy or still, it never leaves its bed. Always Dharmakaya, even when it manifests in form as Sambhogakaya, Nirmanakaya, energy, manifestations, busy, hurry, creative, whatever. You don't have to suppress your creativity. The Sambhogakaya is like creativity. It's joy. It's the art of life. And the Nirmanakaya is the work of life, like what really needs to be done, doing what needs to be done, embodying it. Tulku in Tibetan, Nirmanakaya. Like they say, Dalai Lama and other masters are reincarnate masters. That's the word is tulku, nirmanakai, embodiment. Embodying the Dharma, fully occupying the space of Dharma, occupying truth and reality. Not just tiptoeing, wading in the waters, trying not to get too wet or drown or too committed. Not worrying about getting swept away. Being more like a salt doll, as one of the devotional poets of yoga said. Salt doll going swimming in the ocean of reality. You with me? Not just tiptoeing in the shallows or being afraid of getting swept away by the undercurrent. Salt doll jumping into the ocean of reality, striding fearlessly into the gleaming waves. Salt doll dissolving, if that's what's happening. So view meditation in action. Buddhism, of course, if you study these things, which is, uh, could be helpful to at least have, you know, the Buddhism 101, Jeff's notes, as I call it, Buddhism 101, Cliff's notes, you know, Jeff's notes, <laughs> Buddhism 101, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, which is the Fourth Noble Truth, and the Six or Ten Paramitas, the Four Noble Truths, and the Eightfold Path of the Basic Buddhism, Theravadan Buddhism, the Paramitas, development of wisdom and compassion in the Mahayana, and then the Vajrayana, non-dual energy, pa passion transmuted into compassion, etc. teachings, and Mahamudra and Dzogchen. So Buddhism is always explained from the ground up, according to ethics leading to meditation and mindfulness leading to wisdom and love. The three trainings, which form the Eightfold Path, And the ten paramitas, the Mahayana, the ten panacean virtues, which is, could be our subject today, but I don't want to dwell on it. Because I've taught this a lot before. Maybe you're familiar with it. I have a large, a 300-page book about it, as I mentioned. Buddha's as Buddha does, the ten panacean practices, ten transformative practices for enlightened living. My original title was How to Be a Bodhisattva. My publisher said, foreign word, tilt. The paramitas, sometimes called the perfections. That's way too perfectionistic a translation. The paramitas, the virtues that go beyond. Like first, dana paramita, giving. Not just giving some change to a panhandler to move them out of your path on the sidewalk. But noble giving, self-giving, giving of yourself. Caritas, self-giving. 
charity, caritas, self-giving. Not just outer things, but inner giving of yourself, your time, your energy, lending a shoulder, lending an ear, being there for someone, giving food, medicine, hope, encouragement, protection, support, empowering others and getting out of their way and so on. Not just giving material things. So it's outer, inner, and subtlest giving. The ultimate giving, Dana Paramita's total non-attachment, letting, releasing, not holding on to anything. That's the innermost subtle Dana Paramita or generosity. So that's just the first panacean virtue. Each one of them has wisdom, the sixth virtue in it, prajna. So it's a transcendental virtue or perfection. It's a panacean virtue or transformative practice. It takes you all the way. And the second is ethical self-discipline, and the third is patient forbearance, and the fourth is energetic enthusiastic effort, and the fifth is meditation, contemplation, and mindfulness, and the sixth is transcendental wisdom, gnosis, and so on. And ten transformative practices or or paramitas. These are things we act, this is how bodhisattvas live day to day. We're talking about action and conduct today, remember? View, meditation, mostly what I concentrated on this week. Now action as we move into life. So the seventh of these is skillful means, resourcefulness, and so on. The sixth is wisdom, prajnaparamita, discernment, discrimination, intuition, higher intuition. Wisdom shows us, reveals to us, tells us what needs to be done. Skillful means, the seventh, allows us to accomplish it. Methods. Resourcefulness, skillful means, we call it upaya. Flexibility, resilience, resourcefulness, skillful means, method. Tab, tub. Eighth, power or empowerment, powers, cities, powers far beyond those of ordinary monks. Cities. Bodhisattva has to cultivate powerful intention, powers to heal and help and so forth. Power of purity. Perhaps powers of leadership or charisma, powers of um, inventiveness and so on, powers of imagination, powers to empower others, like good teachers do. So you have graduates, not a cult of followers. Eighth, power, powers, city, empowerments, spiritual accomplishments. Nine, resolve, a Bodhisattva's strong resolve and intention, vow. High aspiration, to liberate all, not just to feel better myself for a little while. And last, but not least, yeshe, jnana, pristine awareness or primordial awareness, authenticity, buddhiness, Buddha mind. Hard to translate, yeshe, jnana, pristine awareness, authenticity, Realization. Wisdom, the sixth paramita, is often seen as something we develop through learning, reflection, and meditation, and integrating it in life. Developmental. This tenth is more like a flash of lightning, where you just, oh, it's the awakening, pristine, pristine awareness of awakening, not developmental wisdom and discrimination. So these are the 10 paramitas. 
10 perfections, 10 transformative practices of the Bodhisattva. This is how the Bodhisattva acts and lives in life. This is the Bodhisattva code. So even Dzogchen practitioners swooping down from above are still climbing up from below through these, or just being this way naturally. Because if you're in the view, nothing to do, then you're naturally not holding on to things and generous, and things come and go and flow, and you're there for others. You're not avoiding, and you're not busy body um, overlooking because you're so focused on busying yourself with your intended outcomes. True gi noble giving, the first virtue, has no strings attached, gives without expectation of re receiving. Like it says in the Bhagavad Gita, the second most translated book in the world after the Bible, the Bhagavad Gita, the holy classic of India, about how we can win the war over our own delusions and confusions. Bhagavad Gita says, do, do what you do without expectation of outcome, without too much grasping to the outcome. Do your duty, they say, and leave the rest to God, as it says in more literally. Means do what you do, do what needs to be done. Do your duty without overtly expectation or attachment to the outcome. That's noble giving. No strings attached. Not just to get your name on the wall of the hospital wing you donate to or whatever. Noble giving, like good parenting, coming from love. Because we love them, we don't always like what they do, but we're still there for them. That's the love part, even though we don't like what they do. Whether they're babies, colicky, waking us up, barfing on our shoulder at night. Or teenagers, which I don't need to describe. <laughs> <laughs> There's a difference between big love, love, unconditional love, Buddha's love, Bodhisattva love, Jesus' love on one hand, and the dualities and polarities and ups and downs of like and dislike. So it's like how we love our children and we give to them, we try to, we give to them unstintingly, whether they give back or not. We're in it for the long run. That's the royal giving of Dana Paramita. And each of these has outer, inner, and deepest non-dual components. So this is the action or conduct of the bodhisattvas. I'm not going to dwell on the basic Buddhist precepts, basic to all Buddhist traditions, not killing, lying, stealing, sexual misconduct, and intoxicants. I'm not going to dwell on, you know, being helpful and altruistic and charitable in life. Of course, we talk about altruism and compassion and action, seva or service. Bodhisattva is above all a servant leader, not a leader of servants, but the seminal study on this book on this is called Servant Leadership by Robert Greenleaf. Service-oriented leadership. So rare today. Where are our statesmen, statespeople, among all our politicians? Enlightened leadership. So servant leadership, seva, service, service to God through serving humanity, or in Buddhist terms, service to the highest through serving all, through serving the lowest through serving all. So this is very important action, conduct of the bodhisattvas. 
And if we were going to go a little further into this view, meditation, and action, we talk about bokden, enhancement, a kind of secret or esoteric, lesser-known aspect of this Dzogchen tradition or Mahmudra tradition, going beyond, stepping up, stepping out, entering the action, beyond just being a spick-and-span bodhisattva. Just being one with all and everything. Like the great Indian pundit, Saint, Yogi, Master Naropa, after being the abbot of the greatest Buddhist monastery and university, Nalanda, of its time, maybe in history, a thousand years ago, he had a dream about Vajrayogini, and she told him that his foreordained guru, who would precipitate his great enlightenment, lived under a bridge like a vagabond hobo, homeless, under a bridge in Calcutta, eating the awful, the throwaways, the awful from the fishermen. Not sushi. The guts, the throwaways. <laughs> Talopa. And Naropa left his monastery, renounced his kingdom as it were. He left his, mon his head as illustrious philosopher, king, abbot of India. India was Buddhist at that time before the Muslim invasion in the 11th century or so. And he went forth and he, he entered the action. He stepped up. He slept with the roadside leprous old hag. Remember, he was a spick and span leading abbot monk his whole life. Celibate, pure, of course, Brahmin, not touching lower caste. He slept with the leprous roadside in the dust, begging old hag who turned into Vajrayogini before his eyes. And thus he, he, he went beyond his, his purity ideas of spiritual life and mingled with the world. And then he finally found Talopa under the bridge. Vajrayogini told him where her brother Talopa was. And Talopa kicked the shit out of him for 12 years until finally kicking him in the face with his filthy sandal and Naropa had his great awakening. He realized oneness with Talopa and Buddha at that moment. And that Mahamudra awakening has resounded until today through the Mahamudra lineage, down through the Karmapas, Kala Rinpoche, and all of our teachers today, Trungpa Rinpoche, all the Mahamudra teachers that we find today and the Western teachers too. So that's called Bokden, or stepping up, stepping out, enhancement, taking the next step, letting go of the raft, and leaping onto shore not carrying the raft with you. Or, you know, land the raft, use it for firewood, whatever. Use the raft to make a wooden horse and then ride away, etc. cetera, Bokden. So how do we do that in our life? That's the question, where it really matters. I've mentioned this before earlier in the week, one thought is just doing what needs to be done, not trying to do less, not trying to do as much as possible and be a busybody or obsessive uh, compulsive, not being an over-hyperactivist. Be a social and spiritual activist, a bodhisattva, doing what needs to be done and letting go and letting whatever happens happens, not a hyperactivist. There's a difference. Overactive, hyperactivist. That should be a... What do you call it? Diagnosis. 
<laughs> like busybody missionaries who often just stir up more trouble, shoving the truth down people's throats. So one tip, one principle, I think, is doing what needs to be done. Make that your practice, moment to moment. Like the Zen master said, when I'm tired, I sleep. When I'm hungry, I eat. That's an awesome instruction about doing what needs to be done. Chop wood and carry water. Just chop wood and carry water. You don't necessarily have to build a temple. Just need, do what needs to be done. And of course, responsiveness, not just reaction. If, thing, if you're called to do something, then you do it. If th you see things that need to be done, you do it. If somebody runs out in the street, you respond. If the environment is ablaze, you try to protect it and be a steward of environment, not just not a blight on the landscape. Whatever level we're talking about, outer or inner, individual or collective, being a steward, a bodhisattva, not just a consumer, being a distributor of what we've received in this life, not just a consumer our whole life. What can I get? What can I get? What can I get now? I'm retired. Where can I go and get more of something that I don't have? How about thinking the next generations and backing them and getting out of their way and being there for them? whether they know it or want it or not. Bao Tzu says the best leader leads from behind. And the people, when they accomplish things, they say, we did it ourselves together. How great is that? 2,500-year-old wisdom, servant leadership. Another principle is integrating mindfulness and loving kindness and patience and all these virtues into every single place and part of your life, making every encounter meaningful. When you meet people you know, when you meet people you don't know, when you meet the male person, when you meet a squirrel, when you meet a dog. I won't comment on cats. When you... <laughs> <laughs> we meet every moment in that spirit of I, thou, as Martin Buber called it in his great Jewish classic. His Hasidic classic, I, thou, not I, it, not what can I get out of it, separate. I, thou, seeing everyone, everything is thou, as Buddha, as God, as divine, as equal, mirroring. Then who would one exploit? When you see yourself in others and others in yourself, who would you harm? Who would you exploit, as Buddha said? So trying to see the light, the inner child, the little Buddha, the divine, the beauty in everyone and everything. Not ignoring the shadow sides, but not only seeing the half of the glass that's empty either. Or maybe you think it's three quarters empty, whatever. It's not completely hopeless. Everything is workable as possible. We can get there from here, wherever we are. Another principle of integration is natural meditations, which I mentioned, finding things wherever you are that support you so you don't have to wait. Just wait until you go to church or a temple or a mosque on the weekend or a meditation group on Monday night or a retreat. Co-meditating with the sound of the wind 
with the sky, with the waters, running waters, with sound, with sight, with smell, with music, with beautiful things that move us and transport us beyond ourselves. Transport us where? Into the richness of this moment. Not transport us somewhere else. Another way of integrating with daily life is to have a daily practice. Like perhaps when you wake up, like I do in the morning, or morning and night, as we used to say. I used to do morning and night. Now I don't really have night. Just morning. <laughs> then the nap starts. <laughs> or whatever your time of day is. Maybe you're not a morning person. Maybe do it at night after everybody goes to sleep. I don't know. One of the Vipassana teachers I used to know, Mr. Robert Hover, who was Goenka's um, generation. He trained in Burma in the 50s and 60s. He lives in California. He was an aeronautic engineer, very straight. He used to come home from work at, at Boeing in L.A., high-security Boeing engineer work at 6 o'clock and kiss his wife. You know, he had a wife and 2.2 children and lived in the suburbs. He kissed his wife, and his wife would sort of, you know, shunt him like a train into the siding of his meditation room. And he used to say, is the way he put it, I think she wanted me to detox before I came into the, the dining room in the kitchen for the night with the family. But it's what he wanted to do. He meditated from 6 till 7 every night because he got up early and went to work and did with, with the kids and drove them to school or whatever. So he did it for an hour every evening. That was his time. Some people do it during mealtime, a lunch break, if they have that kind of you know, regular job. And by the way, don't think it's just us you know, blanket-wearing hobos. There were some people that actually have jobs and lives out there that meditate and practice. I'm exaggerating. Hello, Bertie from Wall Street. <laughs> um, there's a sitting group at lunchtime in Bloomingdale's boardroom. One of my friends taught it once or twice. I was there once. There's a sitting group at lunchtime at the Pentagon once a week, and so on, at Mount Santo, that unpopular corporate, with some people, corporation, you know. There was a, a whole semester of mindfulness class you get credit for across the river at West Point, one semester. The students, the cadets really liked it, but it was discontinued because the uh, management there said it was making them softer. But this goes on. There are moles everywhere. There's sangha everywhere. Not to mention where you live and your friends and your, your people who do yoga and, you know, Christian meditators, Jewish meditators, Sufi meditators, secular meditators, mindfulness meditators. And there are people you can do it with. So try to have a daily practice, like every morning, and then a, a weekly practice, perhaps with a group that's very helpful and supportive. And then maybe a seasonal retreat or workshop or weekend or once a year, to go deeper, to recharge your battery. And then maybe every um, five or ten years, try to take a sabbatical or a spiritual break and, you know, maybe spend three months, six months, a year on pilgrimage, retreats, catching up with yourself. You know, turn over the garden and start again. Get some fresh growth with a spiritual sabbatical. 
Even the Dalai Lama in his exalted state, supposedly from last lives, as the tradition says, did a three-year retreat from the age of 13 to 16, as is traditional for lamas in Tibetan Buddhism to be lamas. So this is kind of the four practices of daily life, a daily practice, explicit practices I'm talking about now, a daily pra morning practice or once a day, weekly practice with others, perhaps, hopefully, a retreat or a workshop to charge your battery once in a while and go deeper and learn more. And fourth, some kind of spiritual sabbatical or big break when you have time and energy. I find this very helpful to bring it into not just daily life, but to make it a spiritual life throughout the decades, not just a spiritual phase or weekend or experience. We have too many experiences and um, events in Tibetan Buddhism in this country, not enough trainings. And we need to think about this, how we can practice and cultivate and train ourselves and each other together. And the virtues of Sangha, not just of Buddha and Guru, not just of Dharma, but of Sangha, of spiritual connection, of beloved community, of kindred spirits on the way that open our heart. That's also a practice, Sangha practice, satsang, beloved community, true community, brotherhood, sisterhood, satsang. It's a darshan of its own satsang. It's a divine audience of its own satsang, darshan. So this has been a wonderful retreat. This is part of the action, what we're doing, balancing contemplation and action. Tomorrow we go out into the world, so I hope you'll take it slow. Don't rush right home. Don't go right from here to um, somebody said they went to uh, one of those, I don't need this kind of food because I can't, but one of these big hero hoagie places and got a big one, you know, with like everything on it. And then they got on the throughway and they started driving at like, you know, 80 miles an hour and eating the thing. And, <laughs> and, and you know, they got pulled over by the cops and they were going in the wrong direction on the throughway. And it's just, just like, what am I doing? In summation, I think integration is the name of the game today, not seclusion and reclusive, reclusiveness. I don't think we, it's really healthy to dream about being a monk or a nun or living in a cave like Milarepa, unless you've got a special calling, you know, maybe one out of a thousand do. And there are some fine monastics and other kind of such spiritual professionals. But... It doesn't mean that the lay people are second stringers. Don't leave it to the 1%. Occupy the Dharma. Between the ordinary lay person that doesn't have a particular practice or focus or intention, just trying to get by day to day in whatever circumstance, and the vowed lifetime monastic or professional or cleric, we say are the tantrikas, the nakpas, the integrators, the people who make every part of life into their path. That's the tantric principle. That's, a real, that's the third sangha, as we say in Tibetan. And they have their own, we have our own vows, tantric samaya vows and so forth, bonds and commitments and so forth. So I think that's a good sangha to be part of and be proud to be part of. That's a very special um, sangha. And if you 
need a, 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 a role model. You know, Dalai Lama is a great role model of the holding the basic Buddhist vows, the Theravada and the Sutra Vinaya vows, and the Mahayana Bodhisattva precepts, and the Tantric Samayas and non-dual view and all. But more particularly, I think, you know, who can be like Dalai Lama? There's one Dalai Lama. Of course, by nature, same. But we seem to have a little different karma, be a little different stage on the path at the moment. So I look to people like Kinsey Rinpoche and Dujum Rinpoche and um, um, my Tibetan teachers, Nyosho Kempo and Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche and Tukurigin Rinpoche and others, whoever your teacher may be who were Nakpas, who had wives, who had kids, who had grandkids, who did lots of retreats when they were young, who were learned and accomplished and saintly bodhisattvas. That's the point, to be a real mensch, not just to be a cleric. There are plenty of clerics who are real zhlubs, you know? If you don't know what a zhlub is, they're schnooks, <laughs> schmucks, or worse. One could be worse. We find them anywhere, not just, you know, I mentioned before how many how few politicians are real states, people. What's the point in getting dressed up in a costume if your heart is full of malice or fear and hatred or whatever those things may be? That's why Kabir, the poet, Sufi poet of India sang, better dye your heart the color saffron than your clothes. Meaning, make your heart holy, not your outfit. Of course, clothes don't make the man or the woman, but sometimes it reminds us of what we're doing. Like we put on pajamas or something like that at night or to go to sleep, or we put on jogging clothes to jog, although we could jog in our suit. <laughs> Any questions, please? So I think integration is the name of the game today for us lay people who have work lives, sex lives, family lives, political lives, community lives, and so forth. Not just waiting for that big retreat in the sky that may or may not ever come. Yes? I liked what you said about teaching children. Could you just give a few words of how you could ease them gently and introduce Buddhism to them? Um, I don't know really about Buddhism. That's, you know, depends what you're trying to teach them. If you're trying to teach them mindfulness and awareness and concentration, if you're trying to teach them a religion, Buddhism, you said, if you're trying to teach them meditation, if you're trying to teach them, you know, sacred things like prayer, chant, um, how to be, live in a sacred way on this earth. There are books on this, like Mindful Parenting by John Kabat-Zinn and Myla Kabat-Zinn long-time married couple with kids. And there's another one or two more recently. Um, I don't know because I'm not a parent, but I like meditation games. You know, like you bow, they bow. You walk on a line on a tennis court, they walk on a line on a tennis court. It's a concentration exercise, a walking meditation. You walk backward with your feet on a line on a tennis court or a rug or the beach, you know, edge of water. They walk backward with attention not talking, just attending to what they're doing. A meditation game, or bouncing a beach ball up in the air. That's a real a nice meditation game, mindfulness exercise, meditation game. 
and kids can do it in groups or with elders or, you know, we could all benefit from that, the attention it takes to do that. We should do that in here, just get a beach ball going up in the air, or a few of them. And if it hits the floor, everybody has to, I don't know, do 100 calisthenics or something. <laughs> so I hope that's helpful. I don't want to dwell yes, on this. What, I, I mean, yes. you don't want to say the word Buddhism. I, I shouldn't have said that. Um, but just to introduce them to some of the... Principles. Yes. Yeah. I think... Would you mind saying the name of that book again by that author? Mindful Parenting. Mindful Parenting. Thank you. Um, totally and absolutely and utterly the best, universally best way to introduce your children to how to live in a sacred manner is to live in a sacred manner yourself. And the rest is details. The more you, quote, practice, the more you embody those virtues, those qualities, you know, they're like little sponges. They have an antenna sticking out of every pore. In fact, you're their guru. You know, the parent is their guru. Don't think otherwise. So they get a lot more than what you say, obviously. Uh, questions? Craig? Um, could you say a little bit about right livelihood? Not always so clear. Right livelihood is doing what needs to be done. That's the real work. More, more specifically in the vocation field, which is probably what you're asking. Um, being some kind of degenerate artist, you're probably very worried about whether you're harming people or, or helping people. <laughs> How did you know? I know, I know, I see in your aura. Uh, in the Eightfold Path, right livelihood is the um, fifth. It's part of right action, a wise action, right speech, wise speech not lying and other things, wise action and wise livelihood, right livelihood. So it could be interpreted as having livelihood that helps rather than harms others. Wrong livelihood would be harming others or the planet or the community or yourself. And that's nice, that's general, that's true. But also more deeply, we should understand that right livelihood, wise livelihood means true vocation, doing work that grows you rather than stunts you. Doing work that grows you rather than stunts you, finding your true vocation, that's right livelihood, wise livelihood. And like I said more deeply, it's doing what needs to be done, that's the real work. And then, you know, you're a big boy, you have to think about what's, what are we here for and what needs to be done, you know? What are we putting our effort into, and why, and how, and so on, and not just the outer form of it. Everybody doesn't have to be at work in Mother Teresa's orphanage in Calcutta, or be in the so-called caring professions. There are a lot of saintly, altruistic, real charitable, effective giving people in all walks of life, even the surprising ones, I think. So I hope that's helpful. 
Anybody else? Okay, I think we'll end here. Since that's a very interesting and important subject, you might look into the chapter on that in my book about the ten about the Eightfold Path, Awakening the Buddha Within. There's about 30, 20 or 30-page chapter on right livelihood, like each of the eight steps of the Eightfold Path, about the outer and inner aspects of these things. And I think, you know, like being an artist, I don't know, I like to write poetry. I've always been a writer of sorts, so with small interruptions along the way of some decades. But... <laughs> um, seems to me being an art, you know, it's, it's impossible to define what art is because art is a, n um, implies or, or evokes a new way of seeing and being. So that could be seen as like Dharma activity, an awakening activity, if it, you know, is a new way of seeing and being, if it is. Not just, you know, paint or clay or dance or music, anything. And the art of living is the ultimate art. So we're all artists in that way. So are we evoking an authentic way of seeing and being? Or are we just going along with, as we've been told, and living our parents and, you know, gender role life here in America? And where is the freedom and authenticity that the spiritual traditions promise? That's a big part of the right action and right wise livelihood and so on, I believe. Making a life, not just a living. That's my slogan about that. Thank you for listening to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now Hour. We very much appreciate your support and hope you will continue by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash suryadas and link to the donate button or go to the amazon.com link for all of your purchases. Namaste. Tere siwa, tere